and welcome to this episode of the Talking Techniques podcast. In this episode, we'll be taking a look at the emerging potential treatment for Alzheimer's and neurodegeneration. But first, some introductions. I'm Tristan, the digital editor of Biotechniques, and today I'll be speaking with Paul Brennan, president and CEO of NerveGen. Paul began his career at Astra Canada in regulatory affairs and moved across to business development at AstraZeneca with a focus on inflammatory diseases. 30 years later, with a wealth of experience in pharma and biotech industries, and having acted as an advisor to NerveGen's board of directors, Paul was appointed president and CEO at the end of November last year. I'm very excited to speak to him on the podcast today. So, Paul, firstly, I guess I should ask you, how are you finding your new appointment? I'm loving it. It's great. It's, it's a really exciting company. Um, lots, of, lots of potential and lots of challenges, so it's perfect. I'm enjoying it a lot. Okay, fantastic. And so we can get a good idea of um, you and and who you are. Can you give us a little bit about your background um, and then also talk about NerveGen? When was the company founded and what's its goal? Sure. So uh, we'll start with my background. I've been, as you mentioned on the introduction, in the industry for um, about 30 years. I started at Astra in Canada, but actually most of my time at Astra and AstraZeneca was either in Sweden uh, or in the UK. Uh, in Alder Park. So I uh, initially started in regulatory affairs, and then um, after 10 years in regulatory affairs, moved into business development, deal-making with AstraZeneca. Um, I moved into the biotech field from pharma in 2002, where I moved to Vancouver, the Pacific Northwest, and since then have worked in a number of different biotech companies. It's a very dynamic field. Uh, companies are, are frequently being formed and bought and formed and bought. So. The key companies I've worked with that have been in the news are Anamed, Espriva, Aquinox. Um, I've worked in most therapeutic areas, um, oncology, respiratory, infection, uh, supportive care. Uh, and despite the fact that actually my um, graduate degree was in neurosciences, this is really my first focus on a neuroscience company. Um, today, I would say my experience um, even though I have a, a development experience in my first years at AstraZeneca, is really understanding the nexus between the science and the commercial. How do you make a new project interesting commercially, both for pharma as potential partners and for the end customer, the patients, and uh, the, the prescribing physicians? The, the company is, uh, was founded about two years ago. A really interesting story. There's a... a uh, a dentist here in Vancouver whose daughter-in-law got into an accident and became a paraplegic. And he started to look for what are potential or emerging therapies in the spinal cord area that could help his daughter-in-law. Uh, and it turns out there's, in the clinic, really nothing that's, that's spectacular, nothing that really offers hopes for patients. So he then started to look into early science, what was available. And he came across the work by Dr. Jerry Silver, at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Um, and what he saw was Dr. Silver had discovered a novel receptor, PTP Sigma, as well as a no had a novel inhibitor of the receptor called ISP or NVG291. And that the results that Dr. Silver was seeing were really quite spectacular and differentiated from what other, um, other investigators were seeing in the spinal cord space. Um, he also noticed that Dr. Silver really wasn't affiliated with anybody other than the university at the time. There was no industry looking or partnering with him. So, so uh, uh, the dentist, Dr. Punnett, 
uh, was part of an investment group and then pitched the idea of creating a company out of Dr. Silver's technology. And that's essentially how NerveGen was formed, the idea being to advance this therapy for spinal cord injury. Since then, really the understanding around PTP Sigma and the receptor and its effects have really uh, been amplified. Not only does the product work in spinal cord injury, but the potential to have effects in other nerve damage, such as nerve injury or neurodegenerative diseases, is really quite um, significant. And so the companies evolved from one looking just at spinal cord injury to one that's looking at nerve damage um, generally, either as, as I mentioned earlier, as, as a result of injury, such as spinal cord injury or stroke, or as, neuro, as a result of neurodegenerative diseases, such as, excuse me, um, Alzheimer's, MS, uh, ALS, and other neurodegenerative diseases. Okay, and can you tell us a little bit more about that PTP Sigma, Sigma um, and its its role in nerve damage? So how what was it that um, Dr. Silver found so fascinating about it? Yeah, there were, there were really, and it's best told, told as a bit of a story, there are really three essential discoveries that, came to, to the discovery of ISP or NDG-291. The first was that, so do, what Dr. Silver was trying to do is understand why nerves in the central nervous system, when they're injured, don't grow through a scar. And the question was really, is it, a, is it a physical barrier that the scar creates that the nerve can't grow through, or is it something else? And what he discovered was there was a chemical in the scar called CSPGs, chondroitate sulfate proteoglycans, and it was this chemical that was responsible for stopping nerves going through the scar tissue. So that was really the first discovery, that this glial scar had something called CSPGs in them, and the CSPGs were responsible for stopping nerve growth. His second big discovery was to find the receptor, PTP Sigma, that detected the CSPGs. So it was a detector that was present on neurons or on the terminals of neurons, that detected the CSPGs and stopped CSPGs from growing through uh, the scar tissue. And finally, the third discovery was that you could inhibit that receptor with ISP or NVG291, and that inhibition allowed the nerve to grow through the scar tissue, um, which was a huge change. Nobody had, had been able to see such uh, you know, significant results before. Okay, and, and how are you going about targeting um, that PTP sigma. So you've got the inhibitors, but how are you directing them towards the nerves and uh, what stage is your, um, uh, is your technology at at the moment? Right, so, um, so we're using a peptide. Um, so uh, it's often referred to as ISP or intracellular signaling peptide. We also have a, a code name for it called NVG291. There's actually two different versions of the peptide, NVG291R, which is the one that's used in rodents, and NVG291, which is the one we plan to take forwards in clinical trials. And the two are, are fairly similar. There's just there's a small difference between the two. So I'll just refer to it as NVG291. Um, it was uh, designed by Dr. Silver's lab even before it, it came into NerveGen, and it was designed to... Um, um, inhibit the, the, um, uh, the ISP receptor uh, in what's called the wedge domain. And that's something that's below the, the cell surface level 
that you can't get to with antibodies. You can only either inhibit with small molecules or with peptides that are able to uh, penetrate the cell membrane. So the peptide actually has a carrier molecule called the TAT domain, which is attached to it that allows the peptide to get through the cell membrane, hit the wedge domain, and then disrupt the activity of the receptor. Um, can't do it with antibodies. It's potentially possible to do it with small molecules. Nobody's done it yet. It's very difficult to design a small molecule that hits the wedge domain and is very specific to the wedge domain. Well, that is something that we'll be looking at in the future. Okay, and along the way in the um, in the study and sort of establishment of this NVG two nine one, I have got the right right name there. Um, yeah. What techniques were used to develop that molecule, and what sort of classic lab techniques were employed in its study? So that's a good question, and actually, um, so the techniques used to design the model the molecule were really three dimensional modeling, understanding the shape of the wedge domain. Um, and designing a peptide that fit in that shape. Uh, so it's really around um, a, a chemical modeling. That's actually not my area of specialty. So how they go about doing the three-dimensional modeling of the wedge domain and then designing a protein is, is actually beyond, uh, beyond my level of expertise. Um, but it was done within Dr. Um, Silver's lab. Um, it, it, they would have tested multiple peptides and then screened the peptides to see um, how tight the binding is against the receptor, and which peptides have the highest level of potency. Okay, fantastic. Um, and how has this technology performed so far in trials? So um, in preclinical trials, it's performed uh, quite spectacularly. Um, the results that we've seen, uh, so there's quite a lot of evidence looking at a number of different diseases uh, with the peptide. Uh, they've looked at spinal cord injury, um, looking at, at locomotor activity and bladder activity, both in studies that were done by Dr. Silver's lab and independent labs completely outside of Dr. Silver's sphere of influence have, have replicated, in fact, improved upon the results in spinal cord injury. Um, Dr. Silver has also looked at myocardial infarction uh, models of MS. And I'll focus on initially on the, the spinal cord injury because that's really where the, the majority of the evidence has been collected and, and the, sort of the greatest body of evidence exists. And essentially what they've done is in these rodent models, you simulate a, a broken back by, by putting pressure on the cord, and then you look at the activity of the rodent right after the injury and then up to seven weeks uh, and even longer after the in injury. What you'll do is is apply a placebo and to some patient to some of the rodents and apply the peptide to other rodents and look at how they recover. So you're not cutting the cord completely. You're allowing you're bruising the cord, which is really replicates what happens in most cases in spinal injury. So the the rodent, the rat, will have some spontaneous recovery. And on a scale, the the scale that they use is something called the BBB scale. And it's a scale from 0 to 21, where 21 is full locomotor activity and 0 is no locomotive activity. So the rats start at 21 before they're injured. The day after they're injured, they're at 0, they have no movement. And then they spontaneously recover to a level between 6 and 10, which is not a great level of locomotion, but better than nothing. Um, and so what we have done is looked at how our rats that are treated can uh, treat, sorry, respond compared to the rats um, uh, that are on placebo. And what we've seen is a huge improvement, up to uh, five to six point improvement in our studies over 
um, the placebo uh, um, rats. That's much larger than that's been than what's been seen in other studies, where typically other molecules have seen a one or two um, point improvement. And then, quite spectacularly, the independent study in Germany had an eight to ten point improvement in locomotion. Uh, they used higher doses than what we used, uh, and that type of response is really unseen. So, so those have been quite spectacular. Um, the results that have been done on NMS, where you have models that that create uh, demyelination in rodents and therefore lack of use of the hind legs have shown also rather quite convincing results where the treated animals are able to regain function and non-treated animals are unable to regain function. So the preclinical results have really been <clears throat> quite spectacular and what really convinced our, our, uh, uh, the dentist in Langley to, to pitch this as an investment idea to an investment group in Vancouver. Um, and has um, attracted a number of really interesting talent to the company to continue to move the product forward. Clinically, um, we haven't yet reached the clinic, so there's been no clinical results. We plan to start phase one, a phase one study this year, in the first half of this year, first initially in healthy volunteers, and we'll start with low doses and ascend the doses, first single uh, administrations and then administrations, uh, multiple doses. Um, once we've established that the product is well tolerated uh, in healthy volunteers, we'll move into patients, and we expect to be into patients um, by early 2021. So this is really at the the crux of the um, drug development stage. In that case, it's about to move into the clin human clinical trials, which um, I think every everyone who's worked in um, drug development will know this is a, a big and quite an unpredictable step. What challenges do you think you're going to encounter whilst attempting to translate these results into, um, into human studies and hopefully, hopefully get those, those same incredibly successful results? Yeah, so the I think the challenges that we, are, we get are going to be no different than the ch challenges from any regular drug development when you go from preclinical to, uh, to clinical. So it's understanding whether the doses that you've studied um, in animals is going to be the same or similar to the doses that you would expect in human. Um, is the dosing regimen currently where in animal studies we use once a day subcutaneous injections? Will those dosing regimens translate to uh, human trials? Um, it's important for our drug to penetrate the blood-brain barrier, um, and it does in animal studies. The question is, will it also do that in human studies? Uh, we believe it should. There's no reason to believe it wouldn't, but you always... Again, anytime you take the jump, you need to make sure those results are translated. Um, and then also, is the model that we use in animals um, really reflective of what's happening in the human condition? I think you could say in, in a spinal cord injury, the model of a spinal cord injury in, in, in a rodent is pretty similar to what happens to a spinal cord injury in humans. It's a, it's a physical impact on the cord and it gets damaged. But then when you get into other indications, that model becomes less predictable. Um, less predictable is the models that we've had in MS. They're not going to be as predictable as what happens in the human condition. And probably the least predictable models are the one in Alzheimer's disease. So this is what I was. So this is what I was just about to ask about. Um, so obviously the spinal cord um, injuries is have been well, sorry, not easy to model, but um, relatively more simple to model in those animal studies. How have you gone about? Um, the Alzheimer's studies or um, looking at the potential applications of this in Alzheimer's so far? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, and we're just embarking on this. So we actually haven't, as of yet, conducted any specific Alzheimer's models. But what we know is that the mechanisms that our drug work by appear to be very useful for Alzheimer's. So there's three things specifically that our drug does that should be have a, uh, an important application to Alzheimer's. One is nerve regeneration. Nerves will regenerate. Uh, into the, and under the presence of our peptide. And of course, in Alzheimer's, you have loss of nerves, so the ability to regenerate is important. The second is increased plasticity, which is the ability for remaining nerves to take on additional function. So in Alzheimer's, you get loss of nerve function. If you can increase the plasticity of the central nervous system for the remaining nerves to take on function for the lost nerves, you can hopefully restore or regain function um, for those patients that are affected. Um, and the third element is remyelination. Alzheimer's patients do lose myelin or swan cells. Uh, and if you can uh, help remyelinate, you get lot less nerve loss. So all three of those mechanisms potentially have a benefit in Alzheimer's. And then there are other potential mechanisms around um, the glial expression and the phenotype of the glial that seems to have, that our product seems to have a positive effect on. So there's multiple reasons why we believe our product is going to work in Alzheimer's. Now our next step is to actually test models of Alzheimer's. And it's not just, there's not any one single model that's a reflection of what happens in the human condition. So our approach will be to look at different models, to look at the hypothesis of plasticity, and then look at models that model plasticity in Alzheimer's and see how we respond. Similarly, there'll be um, the hypothesis related to nerve regeneration and we can look at models that look at specifically nerve regeneration. So, so in Alzheimer's, it's not about one model. It's about looking at multiple models and testing the different hypotheses to see whether or not you get a positive effect in those models. Um, okay, so recent um, news story regarding um, Alzheimer's. A study from UCSF has shown that tau is a more dominant factor in predicting neurodegeneration than amyloid beta. Um, which obviously goes in the face of quite a lot of previous uh, established thinking. Where do you stand on that sort of tau versus amyloid debate? And what do you believe to be the main contributing factors to neurodegenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's? That's a good question. Um, as best as I know, nobody really knows what is the etiology of Alzheimer's, what actually causes it. And the tau and the amyloid beta debate is really about... Um, is which of these is is potentially causing the neurodegeneration, but I, I, I don't believe anybody really understands what causes the tau or the beta, the amyloid beta to occur. Um, I actually, I, I, you know, I, although there's a, the debate, I, I think the, um, the experiments really haven't been done yet to understand truly whether what's the cause and effect uh, between both tau and beta. So, there's been a lot of amyloid beta studies that have read out negatively, but I think most of them probably are not done early enough in the development of the disease to truly determine whether or not there's an effect. As I understand it, the amyloid plaques will appear 10 years before there are symptoms of Alzheimer's. And really, if you're going to be an effective therapy, you need to influence the formation of those plaques well before symptoms appear, and nobody's even got close to studying that uh, component of the disease. Um, from a tau perspective, I think there's only been one study that's read out on tau, um, and that's a, one of the first tau uh, antibodies that's been in the clinic. And as I understand it, 
the antibody that's designed against that tau product is very broad. It doesn't specific, it doesn't target any of these subtypes of tau. And so whether it's actually targeting the right type of tau uh, is unknown. So I actually, I think that the debate will rage on for quite some time. We haven't had the experiments that definitively answer whether or not tau or beta is the better target. And I suspect that uh, at different stages of the diseases and different subcategories of the diseases, either tau or uh, amyloid beta may be the right target. Um, it's not just one or the other, and maybe a combination of the targets might be uh, appropriate. And it may be that it, it, you need to co combine a tau therapy with something else um, that has a novel mechanism of action, such as our, as our product. Um, so I don't, I don't think that there's any, there's no right answer. Uh, I think both tau and beta play an important role and that the studies that, that need to be done haven't been done yet. Um, and, you know, maybe some of them won't be done for some long time because uh, we go back to amyloid beta, um, we don't yet have the mechanisms to uh, detect the progression of the disease quick enough that allows us to do effective amyloid beta studies. Okay, and um, so would you include um, that sort of lack of clarity on issues such as that um, as one of the major issues that, or um, challenges that NerveGen faces in its development of, um, of your product? Um, or are there other more pressing challenges that you face um, sort of on a, on a daily basis um, running your regenerative medicine company? Um, the issues with Alzheimer's, I think, and... and, and um, studying the effect of our product in Alzheimer's will remain uh, for quite some time, although I do believe our product is better suited towards treating the later stages of the diseases rather than the early stages of the diseases. So I think the big problem with amyloid beta so far is it's probably um, best suited towards early stages of the diseases where the disease progresses so slowly that you need you know, either tens of thousands of patients to determine a difference or you need to study them for five to ten years, which is really difficult. Um, so, I, I, But I do believe for our product, we're playing, if we have an effect on Alzheimer's, it's further down in the disease where the progression is a bit quicker and we can study it more quicker. So I think we're in a better spot. But um, really for us, our initial focus is going to be on diseases that, that, that where you would expect to see a response much more quickly, and that would be spinal cord injury, uh, and MS. And so we probably won't have the same challenges that the Alzheimer's companies have. Uh, and then hopefully once we show that um, our mechanism translates from the rodent to man, um, we're going to get interest um, from the large pharma companies in our product for a diseases such as Alzheimer's. So we wouldn't, you know, um, Nervium's a small company. We wouldn't uh, undergo a 2,000-person trial in Alzheimer's. We would, if we felt that there was a large potential in Alzheimer's, we would look for a partner, one of the large pharma companies, to work with us on Alzheimer's. Uh, and what we think is if we show a positive effect in a disease such as spinal cord or MS, um, that's going to pique the interest of those uh, companies uh, to partner with us on, on Alzheimer's. Well, that's really, really fascinating. So going back to the spinal cord injury side of things, where do you see your product in five years? Um, what kind of stumbling blocks do you think you might have to overcome along the way for that to be a successful therapy? Our intention is in five years we'll have very good evidence to show that our product has a benefit uh, in spinal cord injury. Um, we can look at different components of spinal cord injury. Um, we can look at 
whether it has an effect if applied shortly after the spinal cord injury within the first few weeks. We can look at whether or not the product has an effect uh, in what's called subacute spinal cord injury, which is about after a month, up to six months, or even a year, while patients are still spontaneously improving and see whether or not we can help them improve any more. And then we can also look at whether or not we have an effect um, in chronic patients, patients that have been injured over a year and after that period don't really see much spontaneous improvement. Um, you know, our hope is that we will offer a benefit to all of those patients um, and be able to see improved function, either uh, locomotor function, improved use of their muscles and extremities, or bladder function, improved uh, control of the bladder. Okay, fantastic. Well, that's a wrap for our Talking Tech News episode. Thank you very much for joining us, Paul. It was great to have you on the podcast. Have you got any last words that you'd like to add? Uh, keep an eye on us. I think it's, it's an exciting company. Um, uh, we're definitely going to the clinic, and, and hopefully for, for the patients, we'll be successful. Fantastic. Well, it was great to have you on. If you would like to hear more of our podcast, you can find them in the podcast section of our website. Join us next month for our next edition of the Talking Techniques podcast. That's all from us. Goodbye. Goodbye.